Hey everybody, you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and today on the podcast, I am going to be having a discussion with Oren Martin on the subject of biblical theology, the discipline of biblical theology. Thanks for coming on the podcast today, Oren. Yeah, my pleasure. So Oren Martin is a systematic theologian. Uh, He is the author of a few different books here. Uh, One, for example, is Bound for the Promised Land. He's also the series editor for Short Studies in Systematic Theology. He's a contributor in the book called Progressive Covenantalism, and he is the co-author of a book that's going to serve as our topic for today's discussion, 40 Questions About Biblical Theology, and this is put out by Krieger Publishers. So for the last decade, Oren has served as Assistant Professor of Christian Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Boyce College in Louisville, Kentucky, and he is currently transitioning to Watermark Community Church in Dallas, Texas, where he is going to serve as theologian in residence and lead the church's training institute there. And so as I mentioned, our discussion today is going to be centering on this book that he co-authored called 40 Questions About Biblical Theology. He co-authored this with Andy Nacelli and Jason Derushi. Uh, it's part of the 40 Questions series that's put out by Kriegel Publishers. And so Kriegel Publisher sent this to me, and as well as Logos Bible Software, they were nice enough to give me a copy of this book as well. And so this book is available in digital form on Logos Bible Software as well, where if you own the book in Logos, then it's going to come fully integrated with all of Logos's powerful research and Bible study tools, so be sure to check that out as well. But yeah, let's go ahead and jump right in, Oren. First, for those who are an uninitiate to this idea of biblical theology. I think one of the questions the average person probably thinks about is, well, isn't all theology supposed to be biblical? Uh, the term actually means something more than that. So help us out. What is biblical theology as a, just kind of as a basic definition? Yeah, great question. Well, like you said, maybe the, the term can throw people off sometimes because when you say or hear biblical theology, maybe you naturally think about a theology that's biblical, and hopefully as Christians, we're all we're all <laughs> right. to, to have a theology that is rooted in Scripture. But but yeah, the, the discipline of biblical theology uh, is, is a little bit different. So you know, I would say something like uh, the discipline of biblical theology works from individual biblical passages or texts. Uh, so you know, associated words maybe with that, doing exegesis, uh, you know, discovering what is the, what is the meaning of of a, a particular text or passage in scripture. So it works from individual biblical texts to the entirety of scripture. Uh, so it gives attention to, to the progress or development of, of revelation as it, as it progresses, as it develops from beginning to end. Uh, so, you know, in making connections between texts, say, you know, maybe Genesis 12 with God's promise to Abraham to how, how that promise is tracked uh, and how it develops through Scripture towards its, you know, its fulfillment in Christ, um, and making those connections. Biblical theology allows for Scripture uh, to set the agenda, uh, and also to establish, uh, you know, on its, on being established on its own terms and categories. So that's that's an important part of of, uh, of biblical theology. Kind of a, so, if I were to kind of sum it up into a few, a few key terms, um, progression development, promise, 
to fulfillment. Uh, and, and that is all done within scripture's own own grammar, own own words, own terms, and its own categories. And we can talk more about that here in a bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I think of it as one of the ways is to distinguish it from other disciplines, which we can get into other forms of kind of constructing theology and uh, theological thinking. Biblical theology uniquely wants to let the Bible itself sort of set the agenda, kind of using its terminology rather than sort of, not that this is illegitimate, like what systematic theology does, where it kind of starts with categories and questions that it wants answers to. But biblical theology sort of lets the biblical text set the agenda in terms of even sort of asking the questions for us. There's in, in biblical theology, we'll kind of have different varieties to it, which you guys talk about in the book, but all of them sort of, whether it's attending to, you know, what Paul uniquely says versus what John uniquely says, it's all kind of wanting to let the text um, set the agenda, attend to the fact that the Bible is telling an overarching story. So wanting to attend to development and not just treat topics sort of, as you might say, like ah, temporally, like without a sense of the, the time and the development that occurs. So uh, yeah, biblical theology is, is, is not saying that other methods of doing theology or thinking about theology aren't biblical, but it's trying to say there's a unique discipline at play here, a unique methodology in thinking about theology according to the contours of the Bible itself. So for someone who's listening to this, why does this matter? Like, why should the average person care about this discipline of biblical theology? Why should they not just turn this podcast off right now? <laughs> well, I, I would hope, uh, you know, not not just the average person, but, but specifically the Christian should care about biblical theology because, because Christians should care about Christ. And, and biblical theology helps us uh, see and savor, savor Jesus Christ from all of Scripture. So, I mean, that's that's kind of the, the simple answer is we, we should care about biblical theology because we care about Jesus, and we, and we want to uh, read Scripture as Christians, right? We, we don't come to Scripture uh, as blank slates. We don't come to Scripture um, as though Christ never came to fulfill all of God's saving promises. We come to Scripture as Christians, and, and that informs and should inform uh, how we how we read scripture, how we understand scripture, how we proclaim scripture. Uh, so, you know, we, we should care deeply about biblical theology uh, be, because we we approach scripture uh, as Christians and want to read it uh, accordingly. I mean, I'll mention a couple other reasons of, of why maybe we should care about it. Uh, biblical theology helps us to to know and declare the whole counsel of God. Uh, so, you know, not just the individual parts of Scripture, but we want to declare uh, the whole of Scripture. And, and we want to, in doing so, understand how the parts fit in light of the whole, how to, how to interpret the parts in light of the whole. Um, so, you know, as Christians, we, we don't want to only know and proclaim the New Testament, right? The, the Old Testament isn't old because it's irrelevant, right? Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the Testament that, that provides all of the, the categories and structures uh, for the time when Christ would come and fulfill all of God's saving promises. So it helps us to know and declare the whole counsel of God. It helps us to to participate in, in God's mission to take the gospel to the nations. Uh, so, you know, even in doing biblical theology, you think about God's plan from the beginning in Eden, in Eden was to, uh, uh, for Adam and Eve to, to uh, you know, have offspring and their offspring would, would fill the earth uh, and would take God's name to, to uh, so that His His uh, glory might might cover the the, the waters of the sea, right? And we know that Adam failed uh, in in that commission. Adam and Eve together failed through their sin, and and God comes along and makes promises and calls 
uh, other people out to, to continue that, that mission, right? So you think about Abraham, that, that through Abraham, God would bless Abraham and his family, and through Abraham and his family, God would bring blessing to the nations. Well, how does that come about? Uh, well, it comes about through the, the better and, and true offspring of, of Abraham, who, who commissions his disciples to, uh, to proclaim the gospel. Uh, and, and take it to the nations, right, as Matthew 28 tells us. So it helps us participate uh, in the Great Commission as we take the gospel to the nations. Uh, and uh, so, you know, there, there are many reasons why, why we should care about biblical theology, but fundamentally uh, it's because we care about Jesus as Christians. Yeah, biblical theology, especially as attending to the overarching storyline of Scripture, attending to the Bible's own message, helps us understand, obviously, Scripture better then. And based on this conviction that all of Scripture has its center in Jesus, it's a way of us better understanding our Savior, our Christ. And so reading all of Scripture in light of him, understanding him deeper, it's not just an academic exercise. As That's one of the things I really appreciated about all the chapters that you wrote in the book, especially as I felt there was a lot of pastoral warmth in them um, and just a concern to help believers not treat biblical theology as an end in itself, but as a way of better understanding Christ in the scriptures and savoring him more faithfully, more wholeheartedly. And so I'm interested to ask you, Oren, too, just in your own personal uh, life, yeah, just your own experience, uh, really a personal question of how you personally came to love and appreciate the discipline of biblical theology. Like, how did you come to make this a focus of your own sort of study and research and interest? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, <laughs> like many things in my life, uh, I, I don't set out to intentionally uh, uh, do that. I, uh, <clears throat> I, I don't consider myself uh, smart enough to do that. So uh, the Lord is kind and he often uh, allows me to, to stumble into really good things uh, that, uh, that he, he uh, begins to do a work in my heart. So, for example, <clears throat> you know, when I became a Christian when I was 21 in college, um, you know, my, my college pastor uh, just as a new young believer who uh, was not living a life pleasing to the Lord. I remember going into his office one Wednesday night, kind of the, the first Wednesday after I became a Christian. And and I was like, so, so what do Christians do on Wednesday nights? Cause I know what I was doing last Wednesday night, I was racing cars and going out and, and doing really foolish, ungodly things. So, so what do Christians do? And, and he just kind of began to disciple me. And one of the things he encouraged me to do uh, as a as a young believer was to read God's word uh, b- because you know think about the words of Jesus right to his disciples when he says really hard things like if you want to follow me you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood in John chapter six and many of his disciples left and Jesus looks at his own disciples and says you know do you wish to go away also and we have that famous confession by Peter right where else do we have to go you have the words of eternal life and so as a young believer uh, who I was without hope. My father had just died. Uh, I was depressed. I was seeking my joy and satisfaction and other things. When I began to to drink from God's word, uh, I, I began to 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 discover and to experience deeply uh, what those words of life provided. They provided hope. Uh, they provided satisfaction. They provided joy. They provided confidence. Uh, in, in light of God's promises that were yes to me in Christ, and so that really began kind of a just a journey to, to knowing and understanding God's word. Um, you know, as a young Christian, I didn't fully understand. That's really the first book I read through in about two months. Uh, I read from cover to cover. And that was actually the first book I ever read in my life was when I was 21. 
Uh, I was not a good student growing up. I did not want to go to college. I did not like school. Uh, but that really through through those months of, of, of reading and studying God's word it kind of set my life on a trajectory of, of knowing God's word and, and developing a greater conviction and desire to want to, to proclaim it. So, you know, that was that was the case for, you know, a few years. And, and after serving a couple of years in college ministry, um, I, I knew that uh, there were some deficiencies. There were many deficiencies that that, uh, that I uh, was feeling acutely at that time. I was teaching two or three times a week. I was leading ministry teams. And I just felt uh, my own deficiencies in the sense that the, the well that I had there, or maybe the wells that I had to draw from were very shallow. Um, it kind of came through personal study. And I just came to the realization that, that uh, I needed to go to seminary and sit under uh, men who, who had studied uh, for decades and labored over the text. I needed to, to sit under their training and, and to, to, to deepen those wells I had to draw from, uh, both to know and proclaim God's word. So, you know, I moved to Southern Seminary in 2004, and it was really through uh, my first systematic theology class with Russell Moore that uh, we read Graham Goldsworthy's uh, book, According to Plan, and that, that's what sparked uh, my, my love for biblical theology. So, so I would say that's the first thing, just from an academic perspective, being in seminary, uh, taking that class. Uh, but secondly was we, uh, we were members and had been members for the past 18 years of Clifton Baptist Church, uh, where Tom Schreiner has been a preaching pastor, was a preaching pastor, uh, until he uh, kind of rotated off in 2015. He's still elder there, but he was a preaching pastor for the, the first seven years that we were uh, that we were members there. So as a young married couple, we sat under Tom's faithful preaching and teaching where he would intentionally go from New Testament book to Old Testament book to New Testament book to Old Testament book. And he just unfolded to us the, the glories and the riches of, of God's word and how that word uh, together unfailingly declares God's faithfulness in Christ. And so it was really, you know, he, he taught us to read our Bible better as a result of sitting under his his faithful preaching and teaching week after week uh, as he moved from, uh, you know, the Old Testament to the New Testament, almost seamlessly. Uh, and, and so, you know, really through that kind of sparked that uh, th- this is what I want to do. And I pursued that uh, in further uh, you know, PhD studies. Yeah. Biblical theology is one of my favorite disciplines. Like if I had to kind of break down my top three areas that I, I really enjoy and find a lot of attraction to in terms of the just the broader world of like Christian thought and uh, and study. Uh, biblical theology is up in that top three. For me, it was, I had exposure to, I was taught under sort of dispensational thinking for a, a while early on. And that sort of raised questions for me that I wanted, I felt like I wanted better answers to, but it sort of at least got me on the journey of thinking about how the whole Bible fits together thinking about systems of theology and, and how to understand the relationship between the Old and New Testament and, and God's program of redemption. Um, as well as just, I grew up in churches that I don't think I had any sense of there being an overarching story to the actual scriptures. It was just sort of like the Old Testament is this massive forest of disconnected accounts of maybe like people we should emulate or try to not be like, just sort of moral exemplar uh, stories. 
And then you come to the New Testament and Jesus dies on the cross and it's sort of like out of nowhere compared to what was going on in the Old Testament. Or there's sort of two different tracks. God's doing something with Israel and then there's this thing with Jesus and eventually the church. And so when I encountered biblical theology and folks like I read that same book by Graham Goldsworthy and yeah, it was just the scriptures really came alive in a new way. It was like, wow, there is just the beauty of scriptures, the beauty of what God is disclosing to us in the scriptures. It's almost like I felt like I didn't understand. I didn't understand what I was reading before, um, really coming to see how it all fits together. And so it's become passion of mine since. With that said, I, we kind of dipped into this before in a, in a basic definition of biblical theology. We kind of hinted at that there are different forms of biblical theology. If biblical theology, if what they all have in common is sort of starting with the contours and agenda of scripture itself, that can nonetheless manifest itself in different sort of ways people do biblical theology. So do you mind walking us through what some of those different forms of biblical theology are, the different forms that biblical theology can take? Yeah. Um, you know, if you kind of keep your, the, the key terms, you know, tracking progress, tracking development, um, you know, another key term is, is escalation. Uh, there, there's a, there's an escalation of the storyline of a, of a intensification of God's promises as they, as they span from, from uh, beginning to end. I mean, you think about maybe most broadly what, what Brian Rosner would call in that uh, new studies or a uh, new dictionary of biblical theology, you know, a whole Bible biblical theology. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what Brian would say <clears throat> is that's kind of the, kind of the, maybe the fullest meaning, right. Or, or uh, you, you really haven't done uh, biblical theology in its entirety until you've done a, a whole biblical theology. And that's, that's just keeping, you know, it's at the canonical level. So, so it's seeing how, how the part, so maybe not just an individual passage, but even, you know, a book like Isaiah or a book like Deuteronomy, how it fits into the whole. And, and by the whole, I mean, in light of the whole, the whole inspired canon, right, from Genesis to Revelation, our 66 books of the Bible, uh, as, as we see, right, uh, from beginning to end, how, how, those, how those promises, how those texts uh, reach their fulfillment, their goal, their telos uh, in the personal work of Jesus Christ. So you know, that's kind of one way to, to, to look at it, a whole, a whole, what do you would call a whole Bible biblical theology uh, as, as, we, as we track uh, from beginning to end. Um, you know, so, so you think, you know, maybe you can, uh, if biblical theology pays attention to uh, its, its own, maybe to track scripture on its own terms uh, or its, its own words or its own categories, you think about, you know, even Genesis 1 and 2, um, we see people, right? We see Adam and Eve. So you can trace that theme, right, of the people of God from beginning to end, right, and how it spans, you know, from Genesis 1 uh, all the way to, you know, the, the end of Scripture where there's, there's people from every tribe and tongue and people of nation who are gathered around the throne worshiping Jesus. Um, you, you can you can do biblical theology of, of place, right, that, that begins in Eden and makes its way through through the, the promised land that, that God promises and then, and then gives to Israel. Uh, but, but we see that the finality of that, uh, of that theme uh, when, you know, those people mentioned in revelation uh, are gathered in the new heavens and new earth. Um, so you can think about place. You can think about, you know, a, a very, a, a very central theme. Uh, some people would call it the central theme. I think it's a central theme uh, because other um other themes kind of connect to it as a theme of, of kingdom, right? God's rule or God's reign, uh, which has been, you know, described by, you know, people like 
Graham Gold's Worthy God's People and God's Place Under God's Rule. We see kingdom as a, a very prominent theme uh, from Scripture, again, beginning with Eden and uh, in, in ending uh, in, in the kingdom of, of uh, the new heavens and new earth. So, you know, that's kind of the, the whole Bible biblical theology that tracks uh, progress from, from creation through the fall into sin uh, to redemption that's promised in Genesis 3, that's accomplished in the New Testament in Christ, uh, to, to the to the finality of those promises in the, the new heavens and new earth and Reve- places like Revelation 21 and 22. So that's kind of a whole whole biblical theology uh, that, that uh, spans, you know, from the very beginning to the very end. But you can also do just, you know, different themes, right? You can, you can do land, you can do uh, people, you can do place, you can do temple. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of, of uh, terms and categories that scripture gives us, right? A grammar that uh, that we can track from uh, from beginning to end, as we know this progress, its development, its escalation uh, towards Christ. You can also do a, kind of a biblical theology of, of different books. I mean, you can do a biblical theology of Isaiah, uh, as we see the, the the progress from Isaiah one to Isaiah sixty six, uh, or you can do you know a whole kind of section of scripture. You can do a biblical theology of the law or the prophets or the Psalms kind of the tripartite division of, of scripture that we even see with Jesus and places like Luke 24. Um, you can do kind of uh, maybe a historical biblical theology where you're kind of looking at, you know, what one major section of, of Genesis through Kings, which really kind of gives us a, an undivided uh, line of history from creation to exile. Uh, so, so there's all kind of, you know, there's ways that you can, you know, slice that pie. Um, but, uh, but again, you, you're trying to keep all of these things, all of these pieces, all of these parts, uh, in light of the whole. Yeah. So they're all, all of these are f- essentially forms of the discipline of seeking to think theologically according to the categories and form of scripture itself, whether that's mapping out what the entire Bible is doing, especially then accounting for the movement from Genesis to Revelation, from creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's the highest level. Then you can trace out the individual themes that sort of contribute to that movement, land, temple you mentioned. Or we can kind of then dissect particular, sometimes it gets referred to as like the corpuses or different authors, like sections of scripture that are contributing in their own unique ways. And that's really just understanding that like the way Paul speaks and the way he communicates his theology. It's not that we're saying that Paul has a, you know, a contradictory theology from John or something like that, but the idea that they're each articulating their theology with different emphases and, and, and maybe different themes. And so attending rather than like some disciplines, like a systematic theology is going to try to synthesize all those. Biblical theology is going to try to maintain and attend to the distinction, some of the distinct features by which Paul or John communicate their message. But all these are really, in some ways, subsets or different ways of doing what is fundamentally sort of the same discipline of trying to do theology according to the contours of Scripture. Um, So yeah, that's really helpful. With that in mind then, how does biblical theology help us understand the Scriptures better? Or you might say it differently, what are we lacking if we don't read Scriptures with biblical theology? Yeah, um, well, I think oftentimes we can approach um, we can approach scripture maybe like a like a bag of marbles, kind of some disconnected parts or pieces, or maybe you know maybe an anthology uh, that we kind of read that's that's uh, you know by a bunch of different you know authors that that weren't aware of the other authors or you know we, we, so I mean really just kind of a you know maybe some we don't see it as a unity right. 
And so, so biblical theology helps us uh, view scripture for what it is, right? A unified whole from God that, that drives us to Christ, who is the fulfillment or the goal of God's saving promises. So it helps us understand scripture because it helps us read scripture uh, according according to its own uh, to its own storyline, according to uh, on its own terms, uh, and and so you know we, we understand right because uh, God is one, uh, so His Word is the unified whole. It's not disconnected parts. It doesn't just leave things hanging in the air. Though we may not be able to understand everything fully, and we won't uh, because we're finite creatures. We, we do understand because it's from God. There's a unity there, and the, the unity spans its pages through all the diversity from time to cultures, to languages, to authors, that unity, uh, you know, uh, exists through the diversity from Old Testament to New Testament, uh, as it declares God's uh, message uh, in Christ. My next question then is, how does biblical theology relate to other disciplines? I think this can be helpful in even just understanding what biblical theology is. But then even thinking about how we might use biblical theology, like how it fits in, for example, with exegesis, the interpretation of scripture, hermeneutics, the principles that we that are in the background, we might say, as we interpret scripture, or systematic theology, homiletics, the practice and study of preaching, and even just practical theology, applying theology. So how does biblical theology relate to those other disciplines? Yeah, um, yeah, I've read, a, I think, two chapters in that 40 Questions book, kind of laying out the disciplines of exegesis, biblical theology, systematic theology, historical theology, practical theology. I think those over the five mm-hmm. uh, that I have a, a chapter in there that specifically drills down of the relationship between biblical and systematic theology that kind of gives a, a test case uh, of how to kind of formulate a doctrine of the Trinity. Um, that, that I, ho- I hope uh, is helpful to readers to kind of see the difference and, and really kind of through writing those chapters, uh, you know, my, my thinking was clarified uh, a, a ton and uh, what the relationship is between them. So, you know, kind of here's, here's my take, you know, exegesis looks at an individual text, right. Or passage. And, you know, we, we often think maybe associated with exegesis, uh, of historical grammatical interpretation. Mm-hmm. So you're thinking about the historical setting, uh, we're thinking about uh, cultural setting, we're thinking about uh, language, we're thinking about individual words. So you know, that's what we mean by historical grammatical. You know, we're paying attention to history, where it is. So you know, maybe ancient Near Eastern history, uh, with uh, you know, if you're seeking to ter- you know interpret a, you know a passage in Deuteronomy or something like that, uh, you're paying attention to grammar. So you're paying attention to uh, words, you're you're paying attention to um, you know cause effects, if then clauses. You're paying attention to you know uh, you know just all, you, all the things that are connected with an individual passage. Um, and so you're really kind of you know my when I teach on it, I, I associate the words looking down. So you're just you're not looking back, you're not looking forward. You're looking at that individual text. And you're seeking to determine uh, what, what that text means in its original context, uh, according to uh, the author of that text, which we can get to later. Uh, hermeneutics is a, is a broader category of, of kind of the it's, it's the it's the theory of interpretation. It's, it gets into maybe the science and the art of, of discovering what a passage means. 
and so that's kind of the, you know, maybe a broader category of, of how, how it all kind of fits together. Uh, systematic theology, I think, uh, g- goes something like this. It it preserves the meaning of the terms and structures and categories that the biblical theology gives us. So, you know, I think, you know, kind of in contrast to some who think that they're like totally separate, mm-hmm. totally unrelated systematic theology kind of is running rogue with scripture and doing its own things and adding all kinds of things to scripture. That's not what systematic theology is. Systematic theology preserves the meaning of those terms. So you think about terms like people, place, temple, uh, image, covenant, uh, all those kind of things. Uh, it preserves the meaning of those terms and structures and categories as they progress from, from beginning to end, from creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Uh, but but then it goes further uh, by transforming those terms into a into a conceptual framework uh, for people today. So so in other words, it puts all of the the conceptual pieces, and I'm, I'll give an example here in a minute. It puts all the conceptual pieces together uh, to display the anatomy of, of the relations and proportions of Scripture. That's kind of a technical definition. Uh, wh- what I mean by that is systematic theology gives attention to the whole of Scripture. So m- maybe you think about when I say whole of Scripture, what's gathered up in that term whole is exegesis and biblical theology. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we're interpreting texts, we're seeing how those texts fit into the whole of Scripture, how those texts progress and integrate and are synthesized uh, and, and, and reach their goal in the uh, saving work of the personal work of Jesus Christ. Uh, but, but systematic theology goes, goes further than that, and then it looks at the relations uh, of, uh, of those maybe terms or categories. So here's an example. You can do a biblical theology of God the Father, and you can trace that from Genesis, where maybe it speaks about, you know, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. I mean, you have to unpack, like, who is this God? Um, I would argue it's the triune God, but I mean, we kind of see the, the, you know, quote unquote, fatherhood of God from, from the Old Testament, right? As, as uh, you know, God calls Israel his firstborn son, Exodus 4.22. So you think about God as father. Um, you, you can also do a biblical theology of God the Son, uh, and, and or you can do a biblical theology of the Holy Spirit, where, where we see you know references to maybe this distinct person uh, who's divine in places like Isaiah sixty three, right? And now it's shadowy; it's a mystery, but it becomes clear in the New Testament. But we can kind of gather up those texts, and we see the ter- the actual terms there. And, and we're seeing, you know, we're tracking the progress, we're tracking the development and how they make their way into the New Testament and God's final revelation in Christ. Right. So, you know, you, so you have, a, you know, now you have a, a, a kind of a biblical theology of the father. You have a biblical theology of the son. You have a biblical theology of the Holy Spirit. Now systematic theology comes along and says, now, what's the relation between those three things? And systematic theology has employed an important concept to make sense of the fact that there is both one God who is three persons, right? So, you know, you have Tertullian uh, in the early centuries of the church used the term, according to what we know, the first one to use the word Trinity. Well, that's, that's not a biblical term, right? It's not, it's not a intratextual, it's not the Bible's own term, uh, but it is a term that is employed to make sense of what scripture teaches regarding the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, you think about who who uh, who Jesus is, right? The second person of the Trinity, 
the New Testament makes clearly is both fully God and fully man. So we need, we need a term to make sense of that. We need a term to do justice to that. And, you know, let me just say early Christians didn't, didn't do this because they were bored, right? They weren't thinking, you know, kind of twiddling their thumbs one day thinking like, Hey, let's come up with, you know, extra biblical terms um, because we don't have anything better to do. No, it, it was, it was done in response to heresy, right? There were many heresies floating around the early centuries of the church that was either denying Jesus divinity or denying Jesus humanity or a variation thereof. Uh, and, and Christians, because right, they were faced with heresy, they they deployed terms uh, that that would that would um, that would capture what Scripture teaches regarding who the person of Christ is, who is both fully God and fully man. So they developed terms like hypostasis, right, or he's one person uh, with two distinct natures, right. The the natures are conjoined but not confused, right, and so on and so forth. Um, so systematic theology comes along and says, you know, what are, what are the relations between these terms? Uh, you can do another example, you know, maybe to, to uh, maybe be more clear. Uh, what's the relationship between, you know, what, maybe a biblical theology of faith, right? And, and that's an important study, right? Uh, be, because not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament picks up on this very important concept, right? Abraham believed. And those reckoned to him as righteousness, Genesis 15.3, which Paul quotes in, in uh, Romans chapter 4 and Galatians. Uh, and so you, know, you can kind of do a biblical theology of faith and see that, you know, it's always been by faith that we are counted right before God, right? That was true for Abraham. It was true for Paul, right? But how that develops is important, right? We want to track the progress. And now that faith is explicitly centered in uh, and directed toward Christ, right? Um, and we also understand from Scripture that that, uh, that obedience is necessary for God's people, right? It's not optional. Um, and you can see, uh, you know, Abraham was commanded to, to go. He was commanded to obey God. Uh, Israel was commanded to obey God. He gave him his law in Exodus 20, and that carries through the, in the Old Covenant and through the, through the Old Testament. Uh, and in the New Testament, right, Christians are uh, commanded to obey God, right? We're, we're, we're given commands. Systematic theology comes along and says, what, what's the relation between these two things? What's the relation between faith and works? And so it employs uh, uh, concepts to make sense of that relation, right? So we can say that, uh, I don't know, we're, we're justified by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone, right? Or we can say that works are necessary for salvation, but they're not the basis of our salvation. I mean, at, at that point when you're trying to make those distinctions and, and clarify again in the, in the way in the face of error you're doing systematic theology and i would say uh that systematic theology is absolutely necessary as we seek to proclaim the whole counsel of god i love biblical theology but biblical theology is not enough um and so it's it's a whole process right uh and, and i would say one more thing about systematic theology Systematic theology not only gives attention to the whole, it gives attention to the relations of scripture uh, in terms of con uh, terms and, and categories, but it also gives attention to the, to the proportions of scripture. This is kind of taken from Scott Swain uh, in, a, in an article that he wrote. But what I mean by that is, you know, we, we see this in 1 Corinthians 15, for example, right? Paul delivers to them what he, what he sees as, rightly sees as first importance, right? Mm -hmm. So Paul recognizes that there are, first order issues there are things that are not first order issues right for paul the gospel is a first order issue the resurrection is a first order issue right but not everything is a first order issue 
right? And so systematic theology can can see the uh, that there are uh, that there are doctrines that are proportional, right? So we often think about in terms of uh, you know theological triage or something like that. There are there are secondary or tertiary uh, doctrines that though they are important, they are not of first importance. And the systematic theology helps us uh, see that, right? As we seek to proclaim God's word uh, to uh, to today. Yeah, that's really helpful. And systematic theology, too, probably you might include in there the openness to consider how we think theologically and Christianly, even about some contemporary issues, too, where when you're doing biblical theology, you're because you're starting with the you're really letting scripture set the agenda. Scripture may not be raising a question, for example, about transgenderism, not that scripture doesn't have anything to say about transgenderism, but that's not a question that's raising the original context where a systematic theology can help us think theologically about those things as well. But I mean, it's really in the name, right? Systematic theology is really helping us systematize the theology and synthesize things and and think through, like you said, providing conceptual frameworks about these things. Another question would be, what are some of the most important interpretive principles like our hermeneutical commitments or our theological presuppositions that are necessary for doing biblical theology well? Like, do we just go into scripture, sort of blank slates, maybe the idea of more modernist or enlightenment thought where we just kind of, we don't want to have any presuppositions, we just want to go in kind of raw? Or are there actual helpful presuppositions and needed commitments as we do biblical theology? Yeah, well, as, as much as we like, maybe would like to think so, uh, it, it's both impossible and it's naive. Right. Uh, to, to go into reading scripture without presupposition. So, I mean, I always start with the most basic one is the fact that as Christians, right, we are reading the Bible, right? Well, the fact that we're Christians uh, presupposes a number of things, right? It presupposes that we are believers in Christ, right? Well, who is this Christ? Well, this Christ is the word who became flesh, right? So, so there you're starting to unpack these presuppositions. Well, who is the word became flesh? Well, this word is the second person of the Trinity, the son. Well, what's his relation to God? Well, he's the second person of the Godhead, which assumes that there's both a first and a third person of the Godhead, right? The father and the Holy spirit. So in other words, when we approach scripture uh, as Christians, we approach scripture with the commitment, right? The glad and uh, a glad hearted commitment that, that, uh, that there is a triune God who has spoken, right? He's spoken to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, right? Who's the radiance of the glory of God, who is the exact imprint of his nature, so on and so forth, right? So we, we are committed to the triune God who speaks, and, and we are committed as uh, his people, right? Who by faith are followers or disciples of Jesus, right? And as this triune God has spoken, right? He's spoken truthfully he's spoken reliably how do we know that well because he's told us right he's a god who cannot lie he's a god who does not change his mind uh so this god speaks truthfully uh, he, he there is no error in him nor does he err uh, in his word so his word is true it's reliable uh another presupposition maybe is uh is dealing with the authorship of scripture right we'll talk more about this here in a minute but we understand that that uh, when we think about the you know authorial intent or authorial meaning, well, you have to ask the question, who's the author, right? And as Christians, we believe, because of places like Second Peter one, uh, that that God by His Spirit was moved 
helping the authors to write what they wrote, such that what they wrote was his word, right? So in other words, there's both a divine and a human author. Right? And to, to believe the words of Paul is to believe God, right? Because Paul pinned God's word, right? God spoke to and through Paul. It's uh, so such that Paul wrote exactly what he wanted to write, right? Uh, and same is true as Isaiah, same is true as, I mean, it makes me think of, a, of one of my favorite quotes by Augustine, let us treat scripture as scripture as a God's word, right? So, so what Paul wrote, God wrote. What Isaiah wrote, God wrote. Why? Because there's both a divine and human uh, author in scripture uh, that, uh, that is one right? uh, and, uh, and, and declares God's true and trustworthy word. Um, you know, I think because of that, uh, it makes possible even the possibility of a whole Bible biblical theology, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, because it's God's word. Uh, so here the emphasis is on God because it's God's word. There is a unity uh, that spans the pages of scripture that, that declares the saving plan that progressively unfolds through the Bible's various, you know, diversity, uh, authors, uh, different types of genre, uh, over time, through different languages, through different cultures, but there's a unity that spans its pages from beginning to end as it makes its way and finds its goal in Christ, right? So, I mean, those are some of the presuppositions that, uh, that you know, that I would start with, right? God, right, and who this God is, uh, <clears throat> the, the, the nature of Scripture, right, uh, as, uh, as true, as trustworthy, as reliable, as a unified whole, uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah. I th as I think of uh, some additional ones that maybe I would want to throw out as as building on top of those, like you really laid out some of the foundational ones, but even getting into a conviction that that Christ truly is the center of Scripture, and so all of Scripture is going to have relation to Him and and the Christ event, the gospel event. Christ is an interpretive key for even understanding the Old Testament. Then, if the Old Testament was always anticipating him. We're not thrusting sort of some foreign meaning onto the Old Testament when we do that. But if the Old Testament was always by design leading to him, then seeing Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament actually helps us understand better the Old Testament or the conviction that God directs history. So not only is scripture unified as his speech, but also the history that it comments on and that it, it reveals to us is a, is a God-directed history. So it's not chaos, but there's actually design to it. Um, or I think of how the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. Biblical theologians see that as a helpful guide, like actually seeing how they use the Old Testament is a model for our own our own way of, of interpreting Scripture to see how they were connecting the dots and, and relating Old Testament to New Testament, things like that. As well as even then with all these convictions in play, like oftentimes folks will talk about interpreting scripture according to various contexts or various horizons. You kind of mentioned this, the immediate context, wanting to understand the passage on its own terms, but then also looking sort of uh, how does it fit into its, uh, maybe its immediate epoch, its immediate stage in the story? How does it relate to what came before, how is it relating to what comes after, and then how does it relate to the entire scripture as a whole? One of the one of the key features of biblical theology, I think, is this thing called typology. Can you give us a little bit of an introduction to this? Could be a whole podcast on its own, but just for uh -huh. for someone who's not as familiar with typology, or or maybe they've heard of it uh, very briefly, could you give us a little introduction to typology and how it fits into the discipline of biblical theology? 
Yeah, well, maybe most basically, uh, I mean, typology, again, is not, it's not an extra biblical term. It's actually from scripture, right? That, that Adam, think about uh, Romans 5, 14, 13, 14, says that Adam was a type, right? Uh, tupas. Uh, he was a type of Christ, right? Um, we see other types or shadows uh, th throughout the book of Hebrews. So, you know, typology, basically what it is, is it's a, it's a divinely intended textual pattern or correspondence uh, between persons, events, and institutions uh, with later persons, events, and institutions, right? So, so you know, a couple, couple of kind of key things to emphasize. It's divinely intended. Or, uh, intended. It's not arbitrary. Uh, it's it's divinely, it's, it's given by God. Uh, and, and there are correspondences or patterns between persons, events, and institutions uh, with later persons, events, and institutions. So, um, you know, mo again, most maybe most clearly, because uh, we have a, a, a very clear example in Romans 5, Adam was a type of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's why in the New Testament, Christ is called uh, the, the last Adam, right? The second Adam, the life-giving spirit, because, because Christ... Uh, successfully did what Adam failed to do as the covenant head. Either you're in Christ, that means under the, the dominion of sin and Satan and his rule, or you are in Christ, right? A better covenant head uh, in which you are, uh, you've been delivered from that domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of, of God and beloved son. Um, so, you know, we, we understand through typology that, that God's past dealings with his people uh, serve as, as, as patterns, as types for his future dealings with his people. Um, so, for example, Old Testament writers uh, anticipated uh, and looked for, when you think about, let's talk about persons, uh, a, a better David. Right? Mm -hmm. Even after David died, uh, the prophets were making promises that David would come and he would rule uh, in his kingdom forever, right? This, this better Davidic son. Uh, well, the New Testament is clear, right? I mean, all from beginning to end, right? Beginning with the first verse of Matthew, right? Yeah. That, uh, you know, this is the book of the gene genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, and, and there, right, is giving us clues that what the Old Testament anticipated in terms of a better David, in terms of the, the, prop the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, the New Testament gives us in the personal work of Christ. So persons like David, uh, Adam, uh, Moses, right, as he pro uh, promises in Deuteronomy 18 that another prophet would come and would speak God's word, and that word would be true, and the, the way that they would know it's true because it would come true, right? If, he's, if it's not true, uh, then uh, th there's consequences, right? So persons, there's events. I mean, perhaps the greatest, well, I don't think it's even arguable, that the greatest event in the Old Testament was the Exodus, mm -hmm. right? It, it's what uh, one Old Testament scholar said. It becomes the grammar of the Old Testament. I think it's mentioned, I don't know, like 400 times, right? Through either uh, uh, through uh, imagery or uh, the, the concept of the Exodus, right? They're, they're looking to, to another deliverance, right? Be because we understand from even within the book of Exodus, that deliverance, as great as it was, was insufficient, right? By the end of Exodus, well, I mean, just days later, what are they doing? They're grumbling, Right. Uh, so, you know, even within the book of Exodus, we see that, that Israel's fundamental problem wasn't the idolatrous nation of Egypt, nor was it later on the idolatrous nations of Assyria or Babylon or the Medo-Persians or even Jesus today, Romans, right, uh, or Rome. The, Israel's fundamental problem was th their idolatrous hearts, right? And uh, so, you know, we're, we're, Scripture, and especially as it becomes clearer through the prophets, it's looking for 
uh, another Exodus, right? Hosea, Hosea gives us that imagery. Uh, Isaiah gives us that imagery. I mean, there's all kinds of imagery throughout the Old Testament where we're looking for uh, another event. And the New Testament makes clear that that's happened in Christ, right? As he delivers us from the domain of darkness, transfers to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of, us, of our sins. I mean, that's Exodus language, as Doug Moo points out in his commentary on Colossians. Um, I mean, you, you know, there, there's even uh, in Luke chapter nine, the, the word is used, right? As, as Jesus speaks about his departure, I mean, that word literally is Exodus, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the authors, right, are conjuring up in our minds, uh, uh, past events that were divinely intended by God to correspond to and reach their fulfillment in the final event uh, that Christ accomplishes for his people. And then lastly, institutions, you think about the, the sacrificial system, or you think about the temple. Um, you, that sacrificial system was a shadow, it was a type of a greater sacrifice to come, right? And who is that sacrifice? Well, it's the Lamb of God who comes away comes to take away the sins of the world, as John confesses, uh, or, or the lamb that was foreknown from the, before the foundation of the world that First Peter 1 uh, tells us. Um, you know, the, the temple, right? It's picked up from what was lost, God's presence uh, in Eden. Uh, they they uh, construct a, a tabernacle that becomes a temple that's, that is, you know, the sign that God is with his people, right? But that temple was temporary. We know that when they're kind of cast out of exile, away from the temple and away from the land, uh, you know, we have promises like in Ezekiel that, uh, that that God will come and he'll be a sanctuary in their midst. Well, how is this coming about? Well, we don't know this until Jesus steps on the scene and John tells us that the word became flesh and, and literally tabernacled among us, right? So Jesus is the true and better temple because Jesus is the one who mediates God's presence to us uh, as the God-man. So, uh, I mean, typology has man, just exploded my world when I mm-hmm. uh, you know, took uh, Steve Wellam uh, for all of, you know, many MDiv classes. And, and uh, one of the best classes I ever took was Issues in Biblical and Systematic Theology with Steve Wellam uh, was, was deeply influential. And when I began to see these types or these shadows, uh, throughout Scripture, from old from within Old Testament to Old Testament to New Testament, it uh, man it uh, like exploded the uh, uh, you know Scripture in my mind from like black and white to I mean 4D whatever the latest technology is in terms of television right <laughs> we, we just see Scripture with so much more uh, clarity and and brilliance yeah uh, so so it's really I mean if you want a, a helpful book on on that uh, you can read Mitch Chase. Uh, his new book, 40 Questions on Typology, typology and Allegory, um, does, does a fine job kind of unpacking what typology is. But, but yeah, super important to Scripture. Yeah, it's working from the conviction that I think some people have this idea of typology where it's almost like just these arbitrary things that the New Testament says. Like, oh, that was a picture. And you're like, oh, I wouldn't have known that. Um, versus understanding that the Old Testament is forward looking. And so these offices, these people, these institutions, these events are are not the end in and of themselves. They're a part of this forward-looking movement that the entire Old Testament has that finds its climax in Jesus. And so they, I like to think of typology as like prophetic patterns. There are these patterns that are within Scripture. It's not allegory. We're not sort of just making things up from Scripture. There's textual basis for these things. They're rooted in history, but they're forward-looking and they are ultimately going to find their uh, their greatest expression, their escalated fulfillment in Jesus. Some of the interpretive controls, and te- you know, and you mentioned them, but just to you know draw them out a little bit more, the textual controls or hermeneutical controls and typology is there. There has to be textual 
correspondence. There has to be historical correspondence. Then there has to be theological correspondence. Um, and, and again, you know, those aren't just arbitrary, but those come, those come from passages like Romans 5, uh, where there's an explicit textual historical theological connection. Same thing with Hebrews, right, and, and the shadows and types that it mentions. Um, you know, and it just makes me think of one of my favorite quotes <clears throat> that I, that I, I mean, my, my students probably memorized it by now, but B.B. Warfield is that the Old Testament is a richly furnished room dimly lit. Right. So, so everything, all the furniture is there, right, in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. uh, persons, events, institutions. Uh, but what it lacks is light. Right. We, we don't we don't see with with uh, with clarity. Right. And when Jesus, right, who is the light of the world, steps on the scene, what does he do? He illumines the Old Testament and shows us who is the better prophet, priest and king, who is the better temple, who brings the better covenant, who is the, the better David, who is the better Abraham and so on and so forth. Uh, all of these problems, who, who accomplishes the better exodus? Uh, we, we find all of these promises right in Christ. Right. So one of the questions that raises, and you argue this in your book, that the meaning of passages can get extended when read then in light of the whole scripture. Um, you give that illustration just there, B.B. Warfield turning on the lights, and all of a sudden we see more clearly what was already there. But nonetheless, how does this extension of meaning, if we're going to use that language, how does that then fit with the authorial intent of the original author? So if original author, say Isaiah, is writing something and he intends something, are we saying that this extension of meaning, as we kind of read his writing in light of the whole scripture, is sort of you know, running roughshod of what Isaiah meant? Or how do we, how do we think about the, the relation of those two? No, well, the first question I'd ask when you say, you know, the, the extension of meaning fit with the oral intent, the first question I'd ask is, well, who is the author? And I, I mentioned it before, uh, but, but we, we agree as, as Christians, I hope we would agree that scripture has two authors, right? A divine author and a human author. Uh, and, and so when we keep this uh, dual authorship in mind, right, uh, this, you know, f- f- whatever extension of meaning or, or fuller meaning uh, is... It, it should be right common sense because um because god is ultimately the author right and and he is uh you know in the words of uh of first peter one right when when, when uh, first peter one ten says concerning the salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours peter writing to christians uh, searched and inquired in carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories that would follow. And he goes on to say that they weren't serving themselves. They were serving you. Right. So, so what do I mean by this? Right. Well, he understands that, that, you know, in, in a later letter in second Peter one, it was the spirit who was, who was moving them, right. To write what they wrote. And so, you know, did Isaiah speak of a suffering servant? Absolutely, right? We can't read Isaiah 53 and 54 without reading the suffering servant, right? The, 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 the one who, who would take our sin and bear our guilt, right? Uh, as as the, the sacrificial and substitutionary lamb. But, but did Isaiah know the exact person in the exact time uh, that that would come? No. But, but God, by his spirit, was, was moving him to write what he wrote so that in the fullness of time, when God would send his son and God would send his spirit, as Galatians 4, 4 through 6 says, that's, that's made clear, right? Did, did Abraham understand 
that that uh, that he would have a family and that through his family blessing would come to the nations yeah because god told him that in genesis 12 and genesis 15 and genesis 17 but did abraham know the exact time of the person uh, through whom that would come about well no uh, but God did, right? Who was moving Abraham to write what he wrote, such that when the fullness of time came, uh, Galatians tells us, right, that it wasn't promised to Abraham's offsprings, who were many, but his offspring, who is Christ, Galatians 3.16 says. Uh, so that that's what I mean by fuller meaning or the extension of meaning. And it's not arbitrary because, thankfully, that fuller meaning or that extension of meaning is made known at the canonical level, right? Uh, so, so we so we have it in God's uh, the, the the totality of His revelation uh, that He that He gives us. Yeah, I, some people I think I think I've heard it illustrated this way, where it's not like we're saying an acorn all of a sudden means a cow, like an acorn develops right. into a cow, nope. but the acorn develops into an oak tree. You yeah. know, so there is there is we we see the development, but it's an organic development that yep. is actually true to the original. Yep. So the last question I'll ask you then is how should or how does or how should biblical theology play into expositional preaching yeah. in the ministry of the church? Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a, such a, a good and, and uh, just a practical question that I hope, you know, pastors will, will, will benefit from as they as they read our book and other books. Um, I know for my for my for my own life, biblical theology has given me confidence to preach the Old Testament. Um, I, I have been at, at many churches where, um, even a church that I was a part of at one point that the pastor, uh, you know, uh, basically just preached from the, from the new Testament, never preached from the old Testament. Uh, the, there are popular preachers that basically preach from the new Testament and write commentaries on the new Testament, but they don't have commentaries on the old Testament. They kind of use the old Testament as kind of a, you know, moral examples or, you know, bad examples or analogies or something like that. Um, and, you know, I was, I was always confused by the old Testament and thought, man, it's just, it's weird. There's such cultural distance. There's such language distance. There's such time distance. I mean, uh, you know, in addition to just like ax heads floating on water and <laughs> people being cut up and sent around to, you know, various places and just weird stuff like, Let's just do, dispense with the, you know, the Old Testament because that's old and outdated. The New Testament's come and it's clear and it's fresh and it's new and all this kind of stuff. Well, that, that was an improper view of Scripture, right? Because we understand that all of Scripture uh, is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training, for correction and, and, and training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work, right? And, and yes, Paul means, you know, specifically or technically in that in 2 Timothy 3.16, he means the Old Testament. Um, you know, he speaks in other places that, that uh, you know, First, First Thessalonians 1, for example, when, when we spoke the word of God to you, you, you understood that it wasn't just the words of man. It was the very word of God. Well, what was this word that he was speaking? Well, you go back to Acts chapter 16, he was speaking of, of the promises that God gave to Israel, uh, specifically of the Messiah. And uh, he, he connects those promises of the Messiah and tells them that this Messiah is Jesus, right? So Paul's writings in which he declares this Messiah and identifies him with Jesus Christ, uh, who, who came and who lived the life that we, we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve to die and paid the penalty that we deserve to pay. And um, so 
that through his life and death and resurrection and ascension, uh, through faith in him, we can have life. Paul was saying, right, this, this is God's word too. It's not just that the Old Testament is God's word. It's that the New Testament is God's word, uh, but because the New Testament uh, shows us uh, that, that God's word has been fulfilled in and through uh, the Messiah, J Jesus Christ. So um, biblical theology should help us both to understand the Old Testament uh, and to have confidence in the Old Testament that it is God's word and that in that Old Testament is a storehouse of riches uh, in which the mystery that was concealed uh, ha has now been revealed in Christ. And we want to go back. We want to mine the, the riches of the Old Testament uh, be because in doing so, we, we are uh, nourished and we are uh, satisfied uh, because we understand that, that this is a God who not only gives promises or makes promises, this is a God who keeps his promises in Christ. And, and so we should preach and teach God's word that, uh, that, helps, that, that helps our people read their Bibles, <clears throat> right? We, we, don't, we don't want to, to, to preach and teach in a way that you know, basically teaches our people. Maybe we would never say that, but, but mm. we would you know, maybe by, by our practice, we, we, we're teaching to our people, well, the Old Testament's not really important. That's why we're never going to preach it. That's why we're going to kind of avoid it. Um, no, we want we want to preach and teach God's word in ways that, that help our people uh, read and proclaim uh, their Bibles. They seek to know God and make him known. And the best way to do that is to preach and teach it uh, in, in ways that mirror how it has come to us. Well, how has it come to us? It's come to us uh, as, as a as a unified text from Genesis to Revelation, right? So we want to preach it in the in the ways that we read it. We want to read it in the ways that it's come to us uh, from beginning to end, right? From Genesis to Revelation. Yeah. And it not only, I think maybe more obviously, not only does biblical theology help us preach the Old Testament better, you know, in light of Christ, um, but it also, I find, helps us preach the New Testament better in light of the Old Testament, in light of the themes that the New Testament, the new, that the themes from the Old Testament that the New Testament is playing on. And so it's a, it really a two-way street there. And it's yeah. uh, helping people see, um, really helping you preach the passage more accurately by treating it in light of how it situates into the larger to the larger story in the whole canon. Yeah. Well, Oren, it's been great having you on. And I uh, just want to say thanks again for coming on the podcast. Again, if anyone is interested, you can pick up the 40 questions about biblical theology, as well as I know, Oren, you mentioned Graham Goldsworthy, According to Plan. Any other books you might suggest to someone who's just interested in getting acquainted with biblical theology? Yeah, um, I'd, I'd love to, to, uh, to recommend Tom Schreiner's book, The King and His Beauty. Um, it's, a, it's a great, he goes book by book and uh <clears throat> just kind of uh unpacks the the meaning but uh the parts in line of the whole so it's, it's actually a great book to if you're doing you know bible reading if you're reading through the bible and you know a year or two years it's it's good to have that book kind of uh, at your side uh as you seek to to understand it uh and so i think i think tom shriners is great um <clears throat> i mean vaughn roberts has written a ton uh kind of god's big story i mean you know, there's there's some resources in that in the, towards the end of the book that i give you know something i recommend to to maybe new christians or you know maybe even especially children is david helm's book uh mm. god's big picture uh yeah it's it's fantastic i mean basically that's graham goldsworthy 
uh, for, kids, yeah. for, for kids, right? Yeah. And honestly, if, if, if uh, I've actually recommended it to people who have no, absolutely no background and no acquaintance with scripture, and I give them that book to kind of let them see that it's a unified book uh, with the, the kingdom kind of at the center, and then we kind of build from there, right? Uh, and so David Helms is great. Vaughn Roberts is great. Graham Goldsworthy uh, is good. Tom Schreiner. Um, I mean, Kingdom through Covenant. I mean, maybe not the big the big guy. You can build up to that. Kind of just trying to exercise your muscles. But read the shorter one, uh, God's Kingdom through God's Covenants. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of good resources out there, uh, and that's a, a benefit of kind of uh, just being alive today. There's a lot yeah. of work in the past, you know, thirty years in the past century that's been done in biblical theology. That's uh, super helpful in helping us read our Bibles. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, we pray that. Our conversation here today would be beneficial for building up the the church and helping people uh, see Christ more fully and cherish him more wholeheartedly. 